0: All right, well like I said, the time has finally come to bring this long study in the doctrines of grace to a close. In my years of Christian ministry, questions and comments and concerns over these issues have just come up over and over again. And I found the doctrines of grace and their counterparts to be one of the least understood areas of theology among common Christians. But that doesn't stop people from having very strong opinions on them. Most Christians have very strong feelings in regards to what they believe about God's role and man's role in salvation. Even if they can't support them from Scripture or defend them, they, just, they know what they believe and they know they're right, and that's all that matters. But I wanted to produce a study that wasn't bound by time constraints so that we could really take our time to see what the Bible really says about all of these issues. There's no shortage of opinion and worldly wisdom swirling around when it comes to God's role and man's role in salvation, but we don't care about that. We don't care about what's popular or what so-and-so said. We want to know what God has said, what his word says. We just want to do Bible study and find out, not man's opinion, but God's word about his role in our salvation. And that's been the intention of this study, which has been calendar-wise over a year, And I can't say I planned on it taking so long, but I'm also not so surprised because we're dealing with large issues, and we wanted to, like I said, just take our time in exploring them, answering them. We've got a lot of big questions that we've been tackling in this study. For example, the condition of man. Is man basically good or bad? Does man have a fallen nature? Is man enslaved to sin? Does man have a free will, able to choose God or not? And then predestination. Does God predestine some to salvation or not? If so, how does God choose? Does God choose according to his own will or does he choose according to man's will? Then the issue of the atonement what really happened on the cross? What did the death of Jesus accomplish for us? How did his death impact our salvation? And then for whom did Jesus die? For the whole world? Just for the elect? The issue of God's grace what role does God's grace play in our salvation? Does his grace overpower us and draw us to himself, or can his grace be resisted and rejected and even lost? And then lastly, the issue of security. Can believers lose their salvation? If you're saved once, are you always saved? Is it possible for true believers to fall away from the faith, or will they necessarily persevere because God preserves them? And more, I mean, this, all these, these are all, each one of those is a big question that. would take a week or more to study, and that's why we've been here for so long. We've been wrestling with all these weighty and significant questions in Scripture about our salvation, and what part God plays, what part we play, and just rightly understanding the relation between the two. And you'll get different answers to these questions from two distinct schools of theology, as we've well learned, Calvinism and Arminianism. And throughout, we've studied and surveyed what both sides believe about these issues, how they answer all these questions. And in comparing them to scripture, which is our ultimate authority, we've seen, although it's not popular when it comes to the the mind of man, it's clear that God's word aligns with what would be called Calvinism. We can say with confidence that our salvation belongs to the Lord. Our salvation is his doing from start to finish, from eternity past to eternity future. Which is why we will give him all the glory for our salvation without any boasting. God is sovereign over our salvation. And that's really the central thrust behind these doctrines of grace. He gets the, the glory. We benefit, but we cannot boast. Now that we've learned all this over many months, our goal tonight in this final lesson is not to rehash everything. We've, we've been there. We've done that plenty. But we have planned as a final step a lesson on application. We need to finish by making some of the explicit connections between the knowing and the doing of the Christian life. It was never the, never the design of the series to merely fill your heads with knowledge. That's just a means to an end. As your minds are filled with the truth, it must trickle down and enter your heart, enliven your heart, and then engage your hands and your feet. These truths, like all of God's truths, are meant to make an impact on your daily life and not only change what you know, but also change how you live before God. In this final lesson, we're going to connect the dots and show you how. So James 1.22, as we'll soon learn, says, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves also. This is what we need to do tonight. In Ephesians 4.1, We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Just think of Ephesians. Think of all we've learned about the doctrines of grace from Ephesians 1 through 3. And those are some big chapters with heavy truths about God's sovereignty and our salvation. Ephesians 1 through 3. That's the first half of the the book. The second half is of all, all of his application. And he tells us now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So that that divine calling we learned about from Ephesians 1 through 3 and elsewhere, it, it, it bears on us to now walk in a manner worthy of that. That's what we need to learn about tonight. We have implications from all that we've learned. It's time to live them out. We've been called with a divine, supernatural, sovereign calling. Now a certain conduct must follow. The doctrines of grace remain incomplete if they only reside in our minds. And so we need to translate this to action now. So let's do that. Some actions uh, that are all produced by what we've learned. Let's, let's study these now. And then, of course, as you leave from tonight, it's on you to now actually implement. But that's on you. I can't control that. I can just tell you, try and connect the dots for you. Some, some products of the doctrines of grace when it comes to your application. Let's go through these. Number one, the doctrines of grace produce deep thanksgiving deep thanksgiving and that is an application and it, I trust it should go without saying but as you consider all that God has done for us in salvation it just first should make you stop and pause and thank God which is not a which is a form of worship is it not just to thank him in your heart every day throughout the day as these truths fill your mind your first response just how about a thank you an expression of thanks Because one of the chief highlights of Calvinism, we understand salvation is truly a gift. Start to finish, it's a gift, a grace gift. It's a gift we didn't earn, we don't deserve, we didn't acquire with our own will. It's just a sovereign, free gift. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I trust we've studied and learned... Just how free this grace gift is. You should get that now. This is quite a free grace gift. I mean, did you do anything before the foundation of the world to cause God to choose you, to elect you? No. And even if God did use his foreknowledge to look look at you in advance, would he see anything in you that would have caused him to choose you? No, the whole point that we've learned is, there, there was nothing in us, good, meritorious, worthy, acceptable. And furthermore, did you reach out for salvation and take it all by yourself, of your own? Or were you more like a, a corpse floating down a river? is completely helpless, but God is the one who brought you to life and he rescued you that 's the picture. And, and what can you do but, but give thanks? You see, the more you understand god 's role in salvation that it is truly a free grace gift, the more you will give him thanks. At the end of the day, the Arminian has some ground for boasting and can at least a little bit pat himself on the back because according to their view, the decisive factor in your salvation is your will. That God did the exact same thing for believers and unbelievers, those in heaven, those in hell. He did the same thing for all those people. The deciding factor in salvation, then, is your will, your free will choice. And for that, they can boast. But the Calvinist knows that he was saved despite his dead, lost, and rebellious will. He did believe of his will, but God made his will alive first. Then he believed, and so God still gets the glory. And so the Calvinist recognizes this and honors God by giving him thanks It's a gratitude is an essential application here. Romans 121 speaks of unbelievers, the lost. And it said, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That that was a a condemnation on him. They, They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And coming to the truth, we should be the opposite. As we know God in truth... We understand who he is, what he's done for us. We should honor him as God. And how do we express that honor? That We, we know this God. We recognize him. How do we express honor? By giving him thanks. Uh, by, and then we do that with our whole lives. But nonetheless, we give him thanks. Thanksgiving recognizes, or rather expresses, that we rightly recognize God, his person, and his work. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, he says to the, the church for all these things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Just as grace multiplies it should, and people come to salvation, it should re- result in a multiplication of thanksgiving all to the glory of God. Just think about the special grace you've received, that the calling, the special calling, the special choosing that not because of you. You're not special. God's special. His grace is special. But we've received it. We, we can't give explanation. We can just say thank you. God's grace, special grace, is what moved first to bring you to life. And you should just give him thanks for this. In Colossians 1, you can read that on your own, just speaks of really the application as we grow in the knowledge of God. It produces holy living And he says down in verse 12, also that the joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Why do we get this inheritance? Why will we inherit heaven and and the kingdom and glory? Just because the Father has qualified us. He gave it to us. He made us qualified. So we're going to joyously give thanks to the Father. That's application number one. And that should just permeate everything, right? The spirit of thanksgiving. Give thanks in all things, isn't that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 or thereabouts? Secondly, the doctrines of grace produce eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. You know, just past few weeks we've been studying preservation and perseverance. Our perseverance, which stems from stems from God's work of preservation. God's will brings people into salvation. And by that same will they're kept in salvation. And that's the foundation of our eternal security. Arminians love to attack or to attack rather the truth of eternal security by building this straw man where if you can truly not lose your salvation then it's going to lead to countless carnal Christians. But it's simply not true. We'll see later how to the contrary the doctrines of grace should produce holier living among true believers. And also, to the contrary, you know, one of the main reasons God revealed the truth of his security of believers, his preservation of believers, why was that revealed? One of the main reasons was not so that we would live carefree lives, but so that we would be comforted, that we would be encouraged to press on. God's providence and preservation is the cure for anxiety. That we can say it is well with my soul, but we can say that not because of our strength. If our confidence was based on our own strength, it would quickly run out. But we can say it is well with my soul because God promises it. And by his power, we are being kept. He will see us through to that inheritance. That gives us encouragement. That's a supernatural encouragement for us to just keep going. As ma- no matter how hard it gets, you keep going. This is... The eternal comfort we get from these truths. Turn over to 1 Peter 5. Have you look at this passage here. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read verse 10. I'll make some notes. 1 Peter 5.10. I'll read as you're turning there. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, Will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the truths of preservation and eternal security, they're especially meant for Christians who are suffering. The knowledge that God is holding on to you, that's most often given in Scripture in the context of Christians who are suffering, they're going through trials. That was the case with Peter's audience. If there was ever a time where we needed encouragement and comfort and strength, it's when we are going through trials and suffering, being made to suffer, especially for the sake of the faith. That's what was happening to Peter's audience. He says in verse 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. If you remember back to when we studied 1 Peter, it's suffering and trials is a major theme, and, and his audience was going through satanically driven trials. And they were afraid that they would be devoured. But right after that, he tells them, after you've suffered for a little while... God himself will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. He called you to his eternal glory. He's not going to let you go. This is when we need the encouragement. The, these truths, or rather their trials, were causing them great anxiety. Verses 6 and 7. You know, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. They, they were scared. They were just afraid, fearful. That's a natural response to our trials and the, the troubles of life. But it's times like these where we need the comfort that even when we're not strong, God is. And that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And you may be tested by the devil, but God will not allow you to be devoured. You stand firm. This comfort comes from knowing God's sovereignly working to preserve his people. And that's why he tells him the next verse, verse 12, to end the book. Basically he says, You know, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's our takeaway, to stand firm in the truth, to stand firm in his grace. But it's the knowledge of how powerful that grace is that encourages us. We can stand firm by his grace, and we must. And we just think, everyone's going to suffer in life, one way or another. You know, example... Everyone, you live long enough, everyone will lose loved ones in life. Which is the fact of a fallen world. But what's more comforting? or comforting, To think that they died as a result of random chance. It's outside of God's control. He, he had good intentions, but there's nothing he could do about it. Or to know that a powerful, sovereign, and good God is still in control. He's bringing about an eternal kingdom where there is no suffering or death. And that he's in the business of taking evil, like death, and and still ultimately using it for good. What's more comforting to know? The Calvinist, who has a high view of God and his sovereignty. Look, everyone's going to suffer and, for example, lose loved ones. But the Calvinist, equipped by the truth of God's word, can suffer to the glory of God. And although he may suffer just as much as the Arminian he can grow stronger in his faith, not weaker, recognizing this God is big and sovereign, he has good purposes in it. And as we seek those purposes, his glory, our uh, good only results, we can grow and our faith can be, be made stronger through the trial, not weaker. Isn't that what Romans 8:28 through 30 is all about? The next passage in your notes that we know that God causes He causes all things to work together for good to those who who, uh, love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. It's for glory. It's for a kingdom. He's working things out for that. He's good, and he's going to cause all things to be for good for those who love God. That's such a powerful promise. We know it, but don't take it for granted. And then right after, you know, for those whom he foreknew. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. This is what God is doing. We we have a God who causes, not a God who reacts. That's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. We have a God who causes. They have a God who merely reacts. He's got good intentions, but he's not this ultimate ultimate, supreme, sovereign God who causes, he simply reacts. But where's the comfort? It's knowing that God causes all things to work together for good. Not all things are good, but we have a big God who can cause all things to work together for good in the end. And in our sakes, for our sakes as individuals, the ultimate good is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That is our ultimate good, and that's what he's doing in salvation From his predestination to our glorification, he's working it out. Even your sufferings for your good. You can look to the past, see that God is working for your good. You can look to the future, he's still working for your good. And this gives us all the encouragement we need to know he's still working for your good in the present. And that's the the encouragement from this passage, no matter what you're going through. God has taken the initiative in our salvation. No one can snatch us from his hand. Remember, we learned that. Father, Son, and Spirit are working together to preserve you. You will be glorified despite your suffering. That's meant to give you hope. Were our final salvation up to us, if reaching glory and glorification were up to us, we'd have no hope. Our hope would be as strong as our resolve. And that's that's weak. But our hope is found in him and his promises, that's strong. Uh, this God gives comfort and these truths give us the comfort we need. We'll come back to Second Thessalonians 2, but I'll read for you Second Timothy 1, 8 and 9. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God has an eternal plan here for you. If you're his, his elect, his chosen one, he has a plan. From all eternity, he's working it out in your life. It might involve suffering, but so be it. Don't be ashamed of, of him or of salvation. Remember him. And know, like he mentions here and, and elsewhere in Second Timothy. It's going to turn out just fine. And sometimes that's just what we need to, to hear, that it's going to turn out good for you, that everything's going to be okay. That may not change any of your present circumstances. Your life may still be full of suffering and persecution. But the knowledge that you've been saved by God's sovereign grace and you will be preserved by His sovereign grace and that you will inherit that eternal glory that he planned and prepared for his people, it's going to be fine in the end that these truths are given to you to give you the, the comfort and the encouragement you need to not be consumed by your suffering and depression, but to see through, see through it. I see what God is doing here. There's a bigger picture here, and it doesn't feel that way in your trials, but if you can see that bigger picture in the the eternal plan that he has you will endure. And this is what the doctrines of grace help us do. We just have a high view of God, a high view of his sovereignty, and that gives us greater comfort. And that leads to number three. The doctrines of grace produce passionate perseverance. These go together. And these really stem from the last few weeks we've been studying preservation and perseverance. And, well, these are the natural applications. That is our application, right? To persevere. To persevere. We made mention of before, having learned that God is sovereign over our salvation, that does not produce a sense of carelessness or or laxity among believers. Instead, as we are comforted by the knowledge that God will not let us go, we're empowered to run the race with a, a passionate perseverance. It's like you're a race car driver, and if somehow... You are given, an angel shows up in your passenger seat and gives you just a supernatural message telling you, you are guaranteed by God, you will not crash during this race and you will finish. So just, just just go with me, hypothetical. You have divine knowledge that in this race you're about to race, you won't crash and you will finish. Is that knowledge going to lead you to just ease off the gas pedal and just casually coast through the race? Or knowing that man, I'm not going to crash out and burn out here and I will finish. Are you going to floor it and just get the best time ever and, and, and race as fast as you can because you're secure? And you see that the truths of security, for the true believer, we receive those and, and we don't think, oh, I guess now I can just do whatever I want and ease off the Christian life because I'm secure. That's the mentality of, of a false believer. The true believer says, Great. I'm safe in his arms. I'm going to run faster now knowing he's not going to let me go. I'm, I'm safe. I'm not going to burn out here. If I pursue him, he'll keep me. So, again, this is the power of this, these truths. They're, they're meant to, to press us on. And the true believer will respond to the truths of God's sovereignty and our salvation by wholeheartedly embracing his responsibility to run the race with perseverance and scripture expects this out of us. These verses in your notes, and we, we actually looked at most of these last week in teaching on preservation and perseverance, but I'll read for you again, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. You know, he starts in verses 13 and 14, big truths about sovereignty and God's work. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning, for salvation, through sanctification, by the spirit and faith and the truth, it was for this that He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what God has done for you. He loved you, He called you, He chose you, He saved you, and you, you just gain the glory of Christ. I mean, look what He has done for you. And the application. He says in the next verse, so then, brethren, so then stand firm because of what he did for you, knowing these rich truths. Now you have all you need to stand firm. You still have to stand firm. We learned already how our role of perseverance is the the flip side to God's preservation, that they always go together. His preservation, though, enables us to persevere. You must persevere to be saved. And this is how you do it, though. These truths give you the fuel to stand firm. Like Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. See, we keep going by the promises of God. That's, That's where our hope comes from. The assurance, just his promises. He's promised it. If he didn't, we would have no hope. But he promised and he's faithful. And because of that, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The promise, look, he who believes has eternal life, and the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. You, you just got to keep running. Finish the, faith, uh, the race of faith strong, and, and you will enter glory. He's promised. He's faithful. So just get to running and run well. Finish. This, these truths beckon us to this application Anyone who takes the doctrines of grace and it leads them to I'm just going to ease off and coast and do as I please in the Christian life, and it really calls them the question whether one they really know the doctrines of grace or two if they've really been moved by them and born again. Well, there's more verses we've we've looked at these for the sake of time. We'll leave those to your notes and for you to look up. Number four here: the doctrines of grace produce courageous faith. They produce a courageous faith. And as you might know from Joshua 1, nine, God called Joshua to be strong and courageous in leading his people. He said, for your God is with you wherever you go. And in a sense, scripture calls us all to be strong and courageous in the faith. We'll see that in you know, 1 Corinthians 16.13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, Act like men. Be strong. Be strong and courageous. We all are called to be. But our, our strength in the faith, our courage as Christians in the face of challenge, it's not derived from our own strength. It, it's found in God being with us. And this is where the Calvinist can have greater strength and courage in the faith because he's got a bigger God. He's got a much stronger God, a sovereign God. And because our God is bigger, we can have much greater strength and courage because he is with us. You know, think of Matthew 10, 28 through 31, where Christ said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But then he says this, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And Christ paints a picture of a sovereign God. Sovereign over everything from people to sparrows to the hairs on your head. And the point is this God is so sovereign. He has the ultimate authority even over eternity itself. So if anything, fear him. Don't fear people. Fear that God. Revere him. Fear him in faith. Once you come to fear him in faith, then you don't have to fear anymore at all, because he's, he's now with you he, he, he loves you, he cares for you much more than sparrows over whom he's sovereign, and so that the fear of God leads to the the you know the erasing of all fear, the overcoming of all fear, if you 're right with him, knowing that God has saved us and secured us from perishing in, in hell, you can live in a courageous faith where You don't fear man anymore. The solution to fearing man is just fear God. He's bigger. Greater is he who's with you than those in the world. As we follow Christ, we bear his shame in the world. Others will persecute us. If you're living it out, the darkness hates the light. You will be persecuted. But instead of shrinking away, the Calvinist can boldly stand knowing, well, my God is with me. He's protecting my soul. What can man do to me? What can anyone do to me that's outside of God's control, outside of his will? He's good. He's secured my salvation. My soul is perfectly safe. There's zero risk. So where's the fear? Fear always comes with risk. Where's the fear? He, he can kill my body. That's just giving me a early access to heaven. So where's the fear? It's, it's erased if you really trust and fear a sovereign God. With this eternal security, all fear of man is removed and one can really live a, a strong and courageous life of faith. The apostles show us this, like Acts 5.41 where They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord. You know, it was kind of fun to think about for the Calvinist. The Calvinist understands that he or she is immortal until the day of their death. Right, we believe a God who's sovereign over our entire lives. That means the day we're born, and the day we're going to die, and in between, you're immortal. You can't die. If if God has not determined your day, or if if your determined day of death hasn't come, nothing can happen to you, right? It's, it's God's will. You're safe. You're secure. You see, we believe in a God who predestines the beginning and the end of our life story that doesn't lead us to indifference, though. That should lead us to greater acts of faith, knowing what we're safe in God's plan. We should live with greater boldness. That does not mean we throw prudence to the wind and go skydiving without a parachute because, you know, we, we, we trust God. Yeah, we, we trust God, but it does mean we can live boldly. We can speak out about Christ without fearing the world. Again, back to what Christ said, just we have no fear of what man can do to our bodies. We're going to die when we're going to die. And, and he's determined that. He's sovereign over that. So there's no fear of that. There's no fear of death. We're secure. So I'm going to live courageously, boldly, fearlessly for him. The Calvinists can do that more, should do that more to God's glory, like the apostles and just witness of Christ in his glory. And Ephesians 6.10 tells us, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of of his might. And you cross reference that back to Ephesians 1 18 and 19, where we, that phrase occurs again the strength of his might. And it's, a, it's in accordance to all that God has done for us in salvation, our calling, our salvation. That's where God demonstrated the strength of his might. And it's that, that strength which gives us courage to overcome the world and to overcome. Satan, our spiritual struggles. And that's Ephesians 6.10. What comes right after that passage? The armor of God to resist the devil, to stand firm against the devil. You can't do that in your own strength. You can only do that based on God's security, his, his power to preserve you. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's how you stand firm against the devil. And the Calvinist should be able to do that more than anyone because we, we really trust God's sovereign strength to guide us, to protect us, to not let us be consumed by the devil. The Arminian has no such assurance to the Arminian. He very well may be consumed by the devil and fall away from the faith. And there's not a lot of strength and courage there when you have that constant fear. But we trust God. That doesn't ease us off, but it leads to passionate you know passionate perseverance. And a courageous faith. Number four, a courageous faith. Number five, the doctrines of grace produce fervent prayer. They should produce fervent prayer. We've made the point several times throughout this whole series that no matter what you believe, most everyone prays like a Calvinist. Most people, in the end, they show their cards and they pray like a Calvinist. By its very definition, prayer is the means by which we call on God, who's greater than us, to intervene in the world and change things. And if God were not sovereign, prayer would be worthless. If God could not cause things to happen, like Romans 8, 28 says, prayer would be worthless. If God's will was bound by our will, prayer would be worthless. And especially in salvation, if God did not have the ability to supernaturally raise people from spiritual death, and draw them to himself, prayer for the lost would be worthless. See, the Arminian believes, however, that God either doesn't have or doesn't exercise the ability to change a sinner's will. He's just, he's not going to go there. He so respects our free will, he's not going to touch it. We've got to come just totally by ourselves. Yeah, he'll give us some, some common grace. But he's not going to do anything more. You've got to Make that choice all by yourself. He, has, he either has not the power or he just refuses to intervene and, and affect our will. He won't do it. Therefore, salvation is entirely dependent on the sinner changing his will all by himself. And so, really, in that system, it makes no sense for the Arminian to ever pray to God to save someone. God can't do anything anymore, He's already done His job. He sent Christ to die for everyone's sins. He's given everyone prevenient grace. He's done. He's he's done his part. Now it's just up to the sinner. So there's nothing left to pray for. There's no more praying for the lost. Praying for the lost becomes really futile. But at the same time, our our Armenians usually reveal their inconsistency here because they can't help themselves. They still pray that God would save their loved ones. What's God supposed to do? According to their system, there's nothing more he can do. So what are you really praying when you pray for God to save your your mom or your sister? He can't do anything anymore, according to their system. Their their prayers are futile. Their prayers betray their theological system. I think they stem from the imprint of God's supreme nature left on our souls. I would say they're right in their prayers. What's wrong is just their whole system they're really revealing a a deep truth, I think, implanted in our souls that God is sovereign and supreme. Their system is wrong, though. Calvinism, on the other hand, greatly encourages such fervent prayer because we believe in a God who can intervene to save someone, to actually save someone, to change someone's will. Isn't that hopeful? You think of someone in your life, do you have any people that you think, man, they're like the last person that's going to get saved? Like if I could think of this loved one or this person in my life, I know this coworker. like, boy, I can just, I just can't imagine them turning. And if it were up to us, that would be depressing. What are we going to do to change that person? We don't have that power. And if God was done, if God was checked out, if he's like, yeah, I've done my part, it's up to, you a know, free will. That's also, there's no hope there. It's not biblical, but there's also just no hope but to the contrary scripture teaches of a God who can take the hardest heart like Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting the church who hated Christ with a passion and just break him in a second and call him to himself and make him one of the greatest servants That's powerful that's encouraging I'm going to pray I'm going to I'm going to pray believing and trusting that this is what this God does and It's going to give me hope for my lost loved ones. No matter how far gone they are, that it's never too late. As long as they're alive, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 28. Well, until they die, I'm going to pray and it's never too late. God can intervene if he wills. So shouldn't you be fervently praying for the lost, especially your loved ones? God has the power to effectively draw them, to change them. We don't know his hidden will, so we don't know who the elect are. So we're just going to pray for everybody. That's what we're called to do. So just do that. And in fact, the Calvinist believes that God is sovereign over the means as well as the ends. And we believe that God has determined to use our prayers as his appointed means for saving people. Such that we can say, in a manner of speaking, if we don't pray for that person's salvation, They might not come to salvation. Why? Because God has determined to use our prayers as the means of saving someone. It's still his sovereign plan, but he, he uses means. And we preach the gospel. That's the effective means. We pray. That's the spiritual means. And by that, he intervenes. We're just instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He's the builder here. We're just the tool. But the question is, do you want to give him glory by, by being the instrument in the redeemer's hands? Are you going to participate in his work for his glory and your good or, or not? And prayer is one means, he calls us to participate. We're not sovereign. We, we can't change anything, but he can, and, and so we pray. So like Romans 10:1, you see Paul fervently praying for his brethren. He says, "My heart's desire, and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation." Speaking of lost and hardened Israel, in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19, you can look that up on your own, just as Paul, he prays that God would deepen their faith. You know, prayers for sanctification as well, that God can change people and and sanctify people. He's just sovereign over our lives, and he's sovereign over our wills, and we can pray accordingly. And then you can also look up Philippians 4, you should know that verse, but... The the verse of the cure for anxiety, prayer being the cure for anxiety, that's a Calvinist prayer. I mean, you look up Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that's just a Calvinist passage. Calvinists can really pray that and overcome anxiety because we believe in a God who is supreme and can grant that peace. You know, along these lines, number six, the doctrines of grace produce confident evangelism. Prayer and evangelism go hand in hand. Like we said, God sovereignly works through the means of obedient Christians. Hey, if he needs to, he'll raise up rocks and use them to witness, right? Stones and rocks to witness of Christ. But he is pleased when we are obedient to be witnesses. And the doctrines of grace should therefore produce confident evangelism. It is another false caricature of Calvinism that we are right to slam down and reject. That... You know, if you believe in election and sovereignty and salvation, then you're never going to evangelize because God's just going to save the elect no matter what. You know, there's nothing can stop them from saving. Nothing can stop God from saving the elect. So why bother to evangelize? And Calvinism is going to lead to the end of world missions and stuff like that. Just all false caricatures. Just look in history and see how many of the great missionary movements were spearheaded by Calvinists. This is a false caricature, but as we've learned, God is sovereign in saving people, but he is sovereignly determined to save people by means of us, right? He saves people effectively through this special call. Remember we learned about the effectual call, the special call, the the sovereign call where he just speaks life into someone's heart and raises them from the dead spiritually, new birth, right? Remember the special call? But we also learned how In God's design, he does not issue the special call apart from the general call. He doesn't have to, but this is how he determined to do it. That first, the general call must go forth. What's the general call? It's preaching the gospel. Whether someone reads the Bible and reads the gospel, the general call goes forth. Whether they read a tract you've given them, the general call goes forth. Or whether you verbally share the gospel with them, you give them the general call, you, you tell them about Christ. That must happen for someone to be saved. And as the general call goes forth, God then, in his will, sometimes issues the saving special call. That's when someone comes to life. And knowing that's how God works, that's how he is determined to work, and he will accomplish his will. But again, the question simply becomes, are you going to honor and obey him by by doing your part that he's given you to do, just give the general call. Go preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. This is the, the role he's given us to play. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, always side by side in scripture. So be responsible. Do your part. Have confident evangelism. Never do we see the truths of God's sovereignty negating evangelism. But to the contrary, emboldening it, emboldening it. Matthew 28, you've got the Great Commission. Acts 18, Paul in Corinth was starting to get fearful, but, but the Lord spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Remember when God said that to Paul? He's like, I've got many people here. And the fact that Paul understood that God's got people in the city, they weren't saved yet, but they were God's possession, the elect. The truth of this little window into God's will that God has some elect in Corinth. Wow. The truth of election was meant to give Paul boldness and courage to keep preaching the gospel there. So he ended up staying there for another year and a half, I think. You see that the knowledge that God was going to work and was working encouraged his fearless evangelism, did not thwart it. And you can read the, the remaining verses on your own here for a little bit of the sake of time. You know, we don't have time to rehash the lesson here, but just remember what we learned that the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, that's what makes evangelism possible if, if it weren't true. If God did not sovereignly call the dead to life, but if it were up to us to save people, we have to be convincing enough to, con- to, to make someone believe of their own free will. If that were really the case, no one would ever get saved because of what we learned about total depravity and inability. No one would ever be saved. We don't have the power to make people born again. They can't do it themselves, right? If, if God doesn't intervene sovereignly, All of our efforts in evangelism would truly be futile and fruitless. But it's precisely because God has elected some into salvation. He has some people in this city that he sent Jesus already to atone for them. And he's going to draw them to himself. Because of that, we can confidently evangelize. Knowing our labor won't be in vain. We don't know who the elect are, but we're just going to blanket the world. With the gospel, and God will do His part. But that's our part. So do your part. That's that's a consistent Calvinist who confidently, boldly does his or her part, and and we can do that without any anxiety. Just share the gospel. It's not up to you to save the person. You just be faithful to the mission, share the gospel, and then sleep easy. You don't have to be up at night wondering if they're going to be saved or not. That's God's part. You just be faithful to the mission evangelize, witness, even over many years, but then we sleep easy. Sounds pretty good to me. All right, let's try and finish up here. A couple more. Number seven, the doctrines of grace produce holy living. Holy living. You know, I think it's worthwhile to make the point that all these common slanders against the doctrines of grace are just false. False. And one of the biggest slanders by Arminians, they love to say that you know, if you, if you believe in God's sovereignty and salvation and his, his grace and eternal security as well, it's going to lead to just moral laxity and loose living. You're just going to, you know, once saved, always saved. You're going to just now sin as much as you want and do whatever you want. It's going to lead to a bunch of carnal Christians. But that's just not true. Any Christian who believes this and lives this, is merely revealing they're likely not born again. That's because both God's election and calling and preservation is unto holiness. Somebody get that baby out of here! I can say that it's my baby, right? I can say that. I've, been me- I've been waiting to say that. I don't want to say that with other kids. I can say that with my own kid, right? It's pretty funny. God's election, his calling, has a purpose. It's unto holiness. God has called us for a purpose. Why has he called us? Why has he chosen us? Why has he intervened to save us? It's to bear fruit in his name. Tony? I'm sorry to... Go ahead. I know this isn't really the forum for that, but... No, it is, actually. It is is ironic that uh, it's actually Armenianism that has explicitly produced uh, a system that that doesn't promote holy living. The carnal Christianity... Explicitly, it has produced carnal Christianity. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. It's tr- it has produced this easy believism easy that believism. is the, the opposite of... It's really their, their caricature of us has become a, you might say, a self-fulfilling prophecy of themselves. A stock feature of themselves. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's very true. You know, scripture so blatantly teaches also that you know, God's sovereign love for us, this saving love, that's our highest motivation to love him, to obey him. God's sovereignty and our salvation, that's our grand motivation for obedient living. The Arminian seeks to obey God out of fear, fear that he might lose his salvation, a fear of punishment. And according to Arminius and and older Arminian teaching, they believe that if you remove the fear of punishment, if you give people eternal security and the assurance of salvation, that they no longer fear hell, that you know the Christian will revert to a life of sin. And so you've got to keep that fear. Keep people in line by fear. And granted, there is a sense for a holy reverence and a holy fear of, if you do fall away, that's the warning passages in Hebrews. But understand, the Calvinist is motivated to obey God, not by fear, but by love. It's a higher motivation, the higher law of love. We've received this sovereign, saving, special, unconditional love. Of God that we didn't deserve. That's more than enough. If you've received that, you know that, you feel it, you appreciate it. That's more than enough to motivate you to, my life is his now. I've been redeemed, bought with a price. I'm, I offer up my whole life as a living sacrifice of worship unto him. That I don't need anything more to motivate me to obey him, to want to obey him, to serve him. Not to mention that he's given us his spirit to produce those desires in us as well. That's part of his sovereignty too. All this goes to say that the, the Calvinist, the doctrines of grace in this system, they produce a holy living in the right way as well. You know, Romans 1.7, we're called as saints. We're called as holy ones and to holiness. Ephesians 4.1, we're, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. In you know, 1 Thessalonians 4.7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. If you're living a life of impurity, have you really been called? Have you really received the call? Have you come to new life? Well, if that's the pattern of your life, no, you have not been called. You've not been born again. The, the true believer will evidence that by, by living according to his call. First Peter 1:15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You see, our our supreme calling, the special calling, is to be reflected in our lives. It will produce a life of holiness, and we are to pursue that as well. True election and preservation is unto holiness. That's how you identify the elect. Like Romans 8.29, we've been predestined unto what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. How do you know who the predestined are? Those who are being conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To what end did he choose us? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He didn't choose us to keep living like the world and immorality and so forth. He chose us to be holy because he's holy. And Christ is coming back for his bride, and he wants his bride wearing white to be holy. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in him. Not only did he predestine our salvation, he predestined that we would walk in holiness as a consequence of our salvation. And we are to live that out. And you can read the remaining, remaining verses on your own. But this it's a huge application and it's actually it should be the fruit of Calvinism. That contrary to the slanders, that the Calvinists should, having received grace and knowing grace and appreciating grace more, live out that grace and bear the fruit of grace, the fruit of the Spirit, and live a life of just white hot holiness and a desire to obey the to obey the Lord, not out of fear, but because we love him. Look at great things the Lord has done for me. I love this God. And I, I happily give up my life to serve him. And that pleases God. That's, that's the type of obedience he wants too, right? He doesn't want dutiful obedience. He wants obedience out of love. And you've got to appreciate his love first. That's what the doctrines of grace help you do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lastly, to wrap it all up. The doctrines of grace produce True worship. This is another overarching application, of course. Like we began with Thanksgiving, we end with worship. These permeate all of our applications, but produces true worship as a fitting end. All truth is meant to lead to the greater worship of God. The doctrines of grace are no exception. Now, why do we worship God? We worship him because of who he is and what he has done. In scripture, it says, Person and his works are the reasons we worship him. And, well, knowing the doctrines of grace, haven't we learned even more about who this God is and what he's done? Have not we gained in studying salvation a greater understanding of who this God is? Wow, he's sovereign. He's supreme. He's omniscient. He's powerful. And what he's done. He chose us. He called us. He sent Christ for us. He's holding on to us. You should have a greater understanding of who he is and what he's done. Doesn't that mean you now have a a greater capacity to worship him? You do, you should. Your your worship should go deeper. You know, because of total depravity, we've learned that we deserve nothing good from God, right? That's the first point, total depravity. We just deserve judgment. We've sinned, we've rebelled, we've gone astray. We deserve separation. But God, in an act of pure mercy and love, he unconditionally elected us, chose us to be his. Why? We, we do not know. Just for his glory and by his mercy, he chose us to be his. And then he sent us on Christ to provide a particular atonement for us. There's that the middle point. He paid the full debt of our sins on the cross. He bore the wrath we were due. I mean, what grace is that to die for rebels and enemies? And then in time, God drew us to himself with an irresistible grace, an effectual grace. He brought us to to life from spiritual death. He gave us new life, eternal life, and an eternal inheritance. And now by his preservation and our perseverance, he will guarantee we get there and we see that eternal life. I mean, all these truths that we've learned, if they don't make you stop, and praise God and thank God, if they don't stir your heart and make you want to bow down, then something's wrong with you. Are, are you alive? Have you, have you learned? Have you received? Do, do you get it? Do you believe? If you do, you will prove that belief by worshiping this God. That, that's how you know that someone has been made alive, that they worship this God, not just with their lips, not just by singing a few songs or warming a pew, on a Sunday morning, they worship with their whole lives. And that looks like the whole list. Prayer, evangelism, witnessing, thankfulness, just everything. Faith. That's all, those are all just expressions of worship and service to this God who's done so much for us. Like Ephesians 1 says, 3 through 6 and beyond, you know, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You might remember this, but as we learned back in Ephesians 1, three times, I mean, that's a huge passage on God's, sovereignty and our salvation. And three times Paul mentions the the goal of God's work. What was he doing in choosing us and calling us and drawing us? The ultimate end is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. God saved us and elected us for his glory, for his worship. We are merely the trophies of his grace. And you know what trophies do? Trophies glorify the one who earned them. And God earned us. He bought us by his grace. And so be a good trophy. Showcase and show off God and his supremacy and worship him. Now our time's up, but you can read these verses. You might remember 1 Corinthians 1, that him who boasts, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. We are in Christ by his doing, not ours, not our will, but by his will. We've been made a part of Christ and given this inheritance. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's offer our entire lives up to Christ and to the Lord as just worship. Lay down your life on the altar. He's bought you with this heavy price and this unconditional grace. And live now to serve him. So you put all this together. I hope this whole study has instructed you, edified you, you, guided you, exhorted you. I hope that you've been filled with the knowledge of his will in all respects. But remember, that's just a means to an end. Being filled with the knowledge of God is is glorious in itself, but it's always the means to an end. It's the end of of ultimately worship, the glory of God, the end of all things. God created us for his glory. He saved us for his glory. He revealed these truths for his glory that we might worship him. So let's leave now giving God greater glory not just with our lips, but also with our lives. If you've been with us for a lot of this series, you've learned a lot. You know more. Now more is required of you. You are now, you're, you're accountable. The more you know, the more you're accountable. And that's, that's the, the blessed burden of Calvinism, you might say. Like You have no excuse now to not live this out. And to really live under such a supreme God and worship him with your lives. Wholeheartedly not holding back. So let's do that. Like Samuel said, fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he's done for you. If we could, if we could sum up the whole series, it's, just, it's been all about learning what great things he's done for you. Not what you've done, what great things he's done for you. So fear him, serve him with all your heart. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our God, we do praise you as we come to a conclusion of this rather lengthy study, but at the same time, we're we're thankful. We're in no rush. Your word is worth slowing down and really pouring over over months. It's worth laboring with your word that we might learn what great things you've done for us. And and we have learned, Lord, you are a supreme, almighty, sovereign God who by your will, by your choosing, has saved us. From start to finish, eternity past to eternity future, you saved us. You've done great things for us, Lord. And so now we want to just offer up our entire lives to fear you, to trust you, to serve you. May that be our, our ultimate application here. And as we leave, may we put it to practice. Fill our minds with the truth. And by the Spirit, may that enlarge our hearts and then infiltrate our our hands and our feet that we would now be doers of all the word we've learned not hearers only who delude themselves may we walk it out live it out this calling which we've been called and to your glory that's our desire bless this desire and just empower us to do it now may we leave changed and better uh, better worshipers as a result to your glory we do pray in christ's name amen